Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, there is a saying that culture is upstream of politics, in which case you could say that demographics are upstream of culture. And yet, in majority white societies, demographics are almost never discussed. However, a new book aims to change that. It's called White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities. This is it here. And I'm very pleased that we have the author of the book with us. That is Professor Eric Kaufman from Birkbeck College, University of London. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Um, this is a magisterial work, <laughs> uh, hugely researched and very, very important. But you start it with a very simple phrase, which is, we need to talk about white identity. Can I ask you, first of all, how you define white identity? Right. I'm mainly referring to the eth ethnic majority groups within nation states. Right. So, and, and it's complicated in Britain because you've got the ethnic English in England and the ethnic Scots in Scotland, but essentially the white British group in the US, the white Americans. Um, obviously, there's two meanings of that. One, which is simply a racial category about color, but the other is a proper name for the ethnic majority. That's the, the, the way in which I'm using this term. I see. So you say uh, we need to talk about white identity. The implication is, is that we haven't been. Now, I would say that that's certainly true. Why, why would you say we don't talk about this? Well, I mean, part of that was because there's a kind of toxicity around talking about white identity currently, I think, simply because it's associated with the alt-right or yeah. white supremacy. You know, those are the connotations. And, and the point I try to make in the book is it's, this is not just about power and supremacy, that, that in a way these ethnic majorities are, they're ethnic groups like any other ethnic group, which is, that is to say, they're attached to a group defined by being descended from common ancestors, having particular myths and memories, cultural symbols, all of the, of the things which characterize ethnicity, really. And so being attached to those, not everybody, but some members, particularly the conservative yeah. members of those groups, is not anything unusual. And that we need to have space for a kind of legitimate, moderate form of this identity to be allowed to express itself. And that's kind of the point, that it's not you know, allow, you know, having that discussion is not somehow an endorsement of all the bad things white people have done in the past, really. When you, so when you say there should be a space for people to, to talk about this, whatever, um, I suppose that the majority of people, say, if you take Britain, would say that they're not allowed, for example, to be, say, they're proud to be British, or it, are they actually, would you say they're actually expressing what you're talking about when they say that, even though they're saying, we can't, you know, it's a very strong thing you hear all the time, we can't say we're proud to be British, we can't be proud of our country. Is it the same sort of thing? It sort of is. I mean, the thing is, obviously, if you're a dominant group, a majority group, it's like being heterosexual, let's say. I mean, yeah. you don't, that's not a powerful identity because it's everywhere. But, so there is some of that going on that white British people would just think of themselves as English or British, let's say. However, when you ask a question such as, you know, um, in order to be truly British or authentically British, yeah. uh, is it important to have British ancestry? And you get 51% of people saying that, which, which is telling you that even though people only think of themselves as British, actually yes. there is an inner circle, if you like, of true or authentic or whatever Britishness, which when you press on it, you actually get a response. And also the fact that people notice, oh, there are ethnic minorities. 
right. is also telling you that there is a difference that marks out a particular ethnic group. So that ethnicity exists, but it's often uh, expressed in an idiom of nationhood or statehood, like British. Yeah. Right. But yet, actually, there is there is an awareness um, of of that ethnicity, but it's expressed as nationality. But the title of your book is White Shift. Right. Can you explain what, therefore, what is White Shift? Yeah, so I think we're on the cusp of a, a major ethnic demographic change in Western countries. And, and in extreme cases, my country, Canada, where in 2006, 80% of the country is white, and in 2106, the projections are it's going to be roughly the other way around, 20% white, 80% non-white, on today's definition of yeah. white. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a major shift. Now, in, in Britain, uh, it's not going to be as dramatic, but certainly by the end of this century, the, um, you know, whites will be a minority, you know, roughly 50% of the population. In the U.S., that'll happen around 2050. So we're, going, we're entering this period of uh, white decline as a share of the total population, and that brings with it a whole set of insecurities, I'm arguing cultural and identity insecurities that are going to drive phenomena like populism and polarization. Now, there's a sort of longer-term sort of white shift 2.0 in the book, which is more about the melting and mixing which will occur. That's going to happen really towards the end of the century, and the meaning of um, the white majority will, uh, in my argument, expand to include uh, people who have intermarried in from other racial backgrounds. However, um, I think this group will largely tend to trace its ancestry back to the sort of white British heritage, even as it becomes more mixed. But isn't that actually in a way what we used to call, what used to be called unfashionably assimilation or integration, surely? I mean, that is a situation in a way as it exists in, in Britain now to a large extent, isn't it? It varies with social class, doesn't it? I mean, the further down the scale you go, there's actually the more mixture there is, in fact. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure it's a class thing, actually. I think there's, mm. there's uh, it depends on the country. But um, there's a fair bit of mixing, you're right. Um, there's a big difference, I think, between integration and assimilation. Right. Uh, and, and also whether it's compulsory, or not compulsory, but whether it's state-approved or voluntary. I'm kind of more in favor of the voluntary, because there is a lot of voluntary assimilation. But integration, if you just take that def textbook definition, you can be integrated into the economy and the politics, but actually still be ethnically separate. So integration really only refers to sort of civic or political integration. You can right. still have a high degree of essentially ethnic boundedness with integration. Right. People are integrated into a common, you know, common mores, obeying the law, etc. And I think that's actually not sort of what I'm envisioning. What I'm envisioning is actually more of a melting into the ethnic majority, so an assimilation process. And I think that's actually quite necessary in order to have the kind, you know, in order to have the kind of civic unity that you need. It's much trickier, even when you have a certain level of integration, if you have the groups separate uh, or maintaining, you, you know, multi well, decentered in a way. I think that's a trickier. Well, when you talk, you talk about decentering there, I would right. call that multiculturalism, actually. I don't know right. whether you would agree with that, but it's the idea of somehow keeping people actually separately. Do you think that that, you, you write in the book about multiculturalism and the fact that you, this is actually, if you like, on the down, it's sort of like Pete. Um, right. Is it seen, do you think, as a mistake, you know, to have actually, as it were, separated people or? Ex, you know, accentuated their difference? 
Well, I, I, yeah, I think it is seen as a mistake. I mean, I don't think that most Western countries are doing that anymore to the same extent. Um, right. But I think it, 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 multiculturalism means sort of whatever you want it to mean. I mean in a way, there's, there's the hard version of multiculturalism, which is groups totally separate. And then there, there are softer versions. Um, I think if we imagine a society where everybody's integrated into the labor market and common language, but maintain largely separate sort of ethnic identities, that you could say that's a softer version of multiculturalism. Right. Um, and I think that is you know, somewhat of a problematic. It's not the end of the world. There are societies like this, Guyana and Mauritius, and, and they're not at war with each other, but I, arguably they don't function as smoothly, that's all. Yeah. This is, I mean, this topic, you know, white majority societies, uh, right. demographics, all the things that you talk about, you talk about populism, Brexit, the lot. Right. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, these are difficult subjects just to even write about. You're, you're an academic, you're in an academic world. Now, you know, maybe I'm characterizing <laughs> it the wrong way, but wouldn't this make you rather lonely? Absolutely, and, <laughs> and especially the field of anything to do with ethnicity yeah. and race especially is a, you know, it's a very progressive monoculture in a way in terms of the people, not entirely, but to a large extent, and it's very tricky to talk about things such as majority ethnicity in anything other than a pejorative way. Right. And one of the reasons this topic hasn't been addressed is it's just been assumed to be an awful thing, and therefore we don't need to address it. We assume, we all understand it's right. it's got to go. Um, and yet, of course, this is what's coming back at us in terms of national populism is. The, you know, in the U.S., for example, the share of white Americans who have a white identity is rising, and this is strongly correlated with Trump voting. And what's important here is actually attachment to white identity, for example, is not correlated with dislike of black people, for no, example, no, or no. Hispanics. And that's, no. that's the other important point to, mm -hmm. to get it is it's different when there's a war going on, and yes, being Croat means you dislike the Serbs and vice versa, but in normal circumstances, there's, it's a long-standing finding in social psychology that attachment to in-group and hatred of out-group are not correlated. Um, and so part of what I'm saying is here we have to allow a space for a, a sort of attachment to ethnic majority or identity that does not involve yeah. dislike of the out-group. And, and if you keep saying it does involve that and you keep stigmatizing these people, again, these are all things that predict the Trump vote. So whites who say, whites are discriminated in this country or under attack in this country. All of those sorts of responses are linked to much higher Trump voting. And so again, the more that progressives push that agenda, uh, I think the more they're creating a constituency for this kind of politics. I mean, when, when we, you know, I just talked about the academic world there. Right, right. There's, you talk about the, you know, it's the supremacy for a while of a kind of uh, a thought which was what you call left modernism, right. being, uh, if you like, uh, as it were, uh, actually left anti-white ideology. Would you say that, is that a crude way of putting what, what you said? But it seems to be that, that somehow the idea that somehow there is an instinctive dislike or even a self-dislike actually amongst many what you would call liberal whites. Yeah, I think we have to see this as a long-term development of, of these cultural left ideas that really begin even with the utopian socialists in the early 19th yeah. century and the bohemianism of the 19th century into the 20th. 
And then what you get is, is this sort of starting in the 1910s, the beginning of this, you know, it starts out as anti-bourgeois, anti-Puritan, anti-Protestant yeah. in the 1910s with, perhaps with the prohibition of alcohol, that was justifiable, but then it turns into this general thing, well, other cultures are exotic and interesting. Black jazz and Mexican culture are yeah, interesting yeah, and, yeah. and white Protestant culture is stultifying and confining. So that kind of narrative is, is there in the Beats, for example. It's there in the 1920s, The Lost Generation. So this becomes a kind of theme, but these people are a minority. They're not the, the dominant force in the culture until really, the though? 60s. Until well, they're the, there. Yeah, until I mean, the 60s. Yeah, I mean, perhaps they are the dominant force in parts of the high culture right. as early as the 20s right. and 30s, but it's only in the 60s that you get it on a mass scale with the rise of the universities and the television media. Then suddenly this starts to become, a, you know, the, you can see it in the universities with the, the, the increase in the left tilt in universities starting in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And then political correctness in the late 80s represents, it's a scaling up in my view, not a qualitative change. It's actually a quantitative right. change yes. of ideas which are really already kind of there in embryo. And then they suddenly, um, gain and scale. And then once you reach a certain critical mass, you can become the establishment and start to enforce orthodoxy and doctrine. And that's what we're seeing now because they've reached a critical mass that they now dominate so much that they're able to set the tone and be the authority. Whereas maybe that, that anti-white view was kind of a rebellious, naughty thing to do when you were right. a small minority. Yeah. And it was all about freedom and freedom to express that naughty view. Now it's, no, if you don't express that naughty view, you're actually on the out. So, so it's a, a, a massification. Um, and that's, yeah, it's a huge part of the story because, the, you know, race and gender become these totemic categories, although race is number one, gender is number two. Very interesting. Where, but, does, where does class stand in this? Uh, well, class was the old left, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. now gone largely out of fashion. Yeah. But the identity categories, but not all identity categories, you know, redheads or dwarves are not what we're talking about. We're talking, or even disabled, that's not really what gets, what's getting the academic citations or getting the coverage. It's really race and gender centrally. And so uh, John McWhorter has this term, religion of anti-racism. He's an yeah. African-American uh, academic at Columbia, and he talks about all of the ways in which there's this idea of guilt and uh, redemption by being an ally and by ca you know castigating yourself. So there's all these kind of religious tropes around this new progressive religion of anti-racism, and it's extremely powerful, and I think tells us a lot. And so once that collides then with something like the ethnic majority identity, I mean that is sort of the other, you know, the white male bad right. past that right. we're trying to overthrow to come into this multicultural equity millennium, right. uh, which is almost like the, an eschatology of, of the promised land that we're moving towards. And if you're in the way of that, yeah. you've got to go. You know? so I think that's how it is actually perceived on, you know, on an everyday level by, by many, many people. Right. What's interesting about what you say is that diversity, um, and we hear this now, it's diversity is strength, strength is diversity, you know, it's interchangeable almost. But Diversity has gone from being something that was a fact, maybe, to actually being, if, if you like, a purpose, i.e. An, an end result. This, this is something which we are, all should go towards, i.e. not just this is the way it is, but we should go towards. Would you say that that's, that's true? It's certainly how it seems that we are in our culture now. Yes, I mean, that is um, very much connected with this old, this bohemian view of the world of replacing a sort of 
dominant white Protestant or white kind of monoculture, if you like, with something interesting and diverse. So diversity is a, an end in itself, which is one yes, of the reasons yes. it's so hard to say. I mean, I, I have this phrase that there's an optimum level of diversity, not too much, not too little in any society. But that would be kind of heresy, really, for them, because you can't have too much diversity, right, in right. this ideology, because that's the end state that we're aiming for, is, is mm -hmm. a maximal. So that's why it's a sacred value, uh, maximal diversity. And yet we know from academic study after ac academic study that within organizations, within countries, you know, diversity is generally associated with um, reduced provision of public goods, with redu you know, reduced economic success, with a whole series of negative uh, results. Not, and that's not to say it's all negative. So, but, so with regard to violent conflict, diverse, having a diverse society is better than having just two groups equal yeah. size. Yeah. So there are some situations where it's not entirely one way. But if you actually were to look at this thing objectively and say, what's the optimum level of diversity? You'd come up with a different answer than what the left modernist answer is, which is just, you can't question it. It's got to be maximal. So would that be what is called super diversity? I mean, I, I'm thinking, for example, I, I'm, I'm a born and bred white Londoner, right. for example. Uh, London became minority white British, I think, possibly at the last census, I think it That's was. That's right, right? Yeah. So it's probably more along the line there. There is the sort of sense in which um, we used to say, well, how diverse should it be? When, when will you have reached the point when, when it is entirely diverse? I mean, you know, it seems to be that this is actually the aim of, if you like, the, what you call the left modernists. Yeah, it's 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 a he, absolutely the aim, and it's always defined in a way. It's it's never all, it's not always explicitly mentioned, but the opposite of diversity is whiteness in mm. a way. It's not homogeneous blackness, mm. right? So you that's why you'll have occasional comments of a, a set of actors. They're all black, and it's labeled diversity, right? right. Because so, because this is really kind of a comment on whiteness and what we're leaving behind, yeah. and and the glorious future that we're moving towards. Mm. So yeah, there is, there's no real limit on this, because it's, it's kind of, it is the end point, it is the goal, it's a bit like the worker state, it's kind mm. of, this, the, if you like, it's kind of, the end state is diversity equality, which is kind of this multicultural paradise, um, and you can't have enough of it. So would you say that you're talking about Trump, for example, in America, yeah. it seems obvious. Um, the kind of ruling orthodoxy, that this mm. is a great thing, and that this is the way forward, you would see Trump and maybe even what's happening in Europe with populism as a kind of blowback against that. It, right. it, that, that seems clear to you. Yes, yeah, and the way it works is that the mainstream, it's a bit like um, prohibition of alcohol. Right. So if the mainstream stores are not allowed to sell alcohol, right. a black market's gonna pop up. Similarly, when if the mainstream parties are not allowed to campaign or, or not allowed to uh, offer reduced immigration, um, someone else is going to pop up who, who will offer it, and that's the populists. Mm. So in the case of Trump, you know, you had s the Republican Party had in its neoconservative phase, I mean, really made a decision that they weren't going to talk about immigration, uh, except as one of a number of issues, and only illegal, not legal, immigration. Trump comes along, he's the only one of 17 primary candidates willing to make this the central 
focus of his right. campaign. And that's essentially why he won the primary. And, and you know, study after study shows this, and certainly in the, uh, in, in the presidential election as well. If we look at non-voters or Obama voters who switched to Trump, right. um, views on immigration were absolutely critical uh, to that. And now, of course, immigration is, has a profile in American politics that it just has not had since data's been collected in the 1930s. So I'd say the, the empirical um, side of this is, is rock solid in terms of the importance of immigration. And, and it all stems from the fact that because of the taboos, which again come from this progressive ideology, which shaped even the right, even the right-wing media, yeah, yeah. this was a red line it wouldn't go across. Um, nobody was offering this. And so, you know, and the Republican Party was turning a blind eye. I mean, yes, it was talking about border enforcement, but it really wasn't doing that much right. about it. And so along comes Trump. And because, again, the progressive narrowing of that Overton window of acceptable debate created the space, the vacuum for Trump. Uh, and if, so if you hadn't had that narrowing, which was progressive driven, there wouldn't have been room for a Trump because the mainstream parties would have already been addressing this issue. Where does Brexit stand in this view then? Because you obviously, you right. talk about, you're talking about America, talking about Western Europe uh, sure. in total. What about Brexit? I think it's somewhat similar. It's not exactly similar, no, but no. it's somewhat similar. So no. there's no question immigration again was absolutely the central reason for most voters, not all voters. And certainly, probably for the intellectual elite of the Leave campaign, they may have been more libertarian. But the voting base for, for Leave are people who wanted essentially slower change, less immigration. And this is, I think, linked much more to this idea of, of wanting to slow down the pace of cultural change to what they're attached to, the nation they know. So it's not as much about you know, feeling left behind economically. Um, there's some of that, but if we look at the data actually, rich, poor yeah. income levels yeah. don't give us that much of a, of a predictive power on who voted Leave. I'm, I'm actually I'm yeah. thrilled that you say this because it was always my sense that this, in the Brexit campaign, for example, this constant emphasis on the left behind was not necessarily getting to the nub of it. Right. You know, right. because in fact, these things were a cultural anxiety, cultural, uh, cultural feeling right. very much. Uh, one thing that you said that I really want to pick up, you're talking about basically a white majority being open, you know, right. as it were, absorbing new, new people. Is that possible, surely, when you have the rate of migration, which is this, historically unprecedented that we have, for example, in Europe at the moment. And sure, I'm sure maybe in America, I don't know, but right. in Europe, surely it means that things have got to be steadier, doesn't it? Doesn't it mean that it's got to be, well, what would yeah. you say? I mean, it seems to me that it's making it almost impossible for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that the rate, the speed of immigration will affect it. It'll simply allow for larger um, minority groups, you know, they'll reach critical mass, which, which may allow them to not mix as much, although I think the evidence is sketchier on that. What, what I would say is it probably, there probably will be mixing in any event, but I think that it's just that the majority group will grow smaller. Right. Its consciousness and its myths, symbols, memories, whatever, will, will become a smaller part of the picture, of the total picture, because there's two entities here. There is the ethnic majority, but there's also the nation as a whole. Yeah. And there's something I call ethno-traditional nationalism, which is a bit of a big word, but people are also attached to the nation as a whole, mm -hmm. which it's not just mm -hmm. about sort of British values or something like that, but also there is a, a, a majority and a minority culture, which, 
which inform the nation as a whole. So even an ethnic minority, even a British Pakistani, and we know this from some survey data, they can, particularly the conservatives, will be attached to the idea of Britain having a white British group that is sizable. Right. Um, that a Britain in which it's just a collection of, of minorities is not necessarily something even these minorities want because they're attached to a traditional conception of what the nation is. Um, and of course, white British people are even more attached to that uh, on average. So it's also an attachment to the ethnic composition which doesn't mean that people want it to be homogenous and everybody, if you're not white, you're not a member of the nation. No, but it's, a, it's, it's more that you know, there's a majority and there are minorities and that's fine, but we don't want to necessarily have over rapid change to that matrix. Because at the moment, it would seem that that change for many people is, is extraordinarily rapid. I mean, you know, if you have you know, large uh, numbers in terms of migration coming into Britain or Europe, whatever, um, then basically there is almost no need for them, as it were. You know, they're ready-made communities, as it were. There's no need to join. There's no incentive. That's the problem, surely, isn't it? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there is always an ongoing mixing. Um, I'm not sure it's so yeah. much about the minorities, because they are tending to leave their areas of concentration. Yeah. I mean, it depends which group we're talking about. I think it, but I think it's much more about what is the mix in the country and how fast is that changing, mm. and what is that doing to people's environment and what they know and are attached to. Uh, and that is that sense of what I, the country I know that going now it's not everybody and this is a David Goodhart has this phrase somewheres and anywheres and yes, exactly. and you know I think the division is really between say if we take the white British people who are attached to um, a, a certain ethnic composition of the nation or to uh, to their own group uh, and and then you have another group who are not attached mm -hmm. and that's fine and this comes very much down to personal psychology, and there's, a, again, a big literature on this, that it's between a third and a half in, you know, hereditary, whether you fall on the spectrum of preferring order and less diversity, or whether you prefer change and more diversity. It's very deeply ingrained. And so what you do if you say, you know, everybody must prefer change and diversity, is you alienate people who are predisposed because of their psychology, their childhood experiences, to prefer stability and order. And so that's the problem is that we polarize, if you go for high-speed diversity, you polarize society on that, on that basis. And that's why I say you kind of need to come and meet in the middle and, and sort of come to a speed that people are comfortable with. Well, uh, you say meeting in the, mi yeah. in the middle. You actually, um, there's a quote here from your book which I, I will read. Um, what's needed? is a new vision that gives conservative members of white majorities hope for the future of their group, while permitting cosmopolitans the freedom to celebrate diversity. Now, right. that seems, I would say this seems very optimistic, but it's, it's like a balancing act. What are you, do you think that balance, balancing act could be struck? Do you, is that, do you feel that, having written well, I think, I think so. I think that a ch it, it would involve two things. One is some sort of accommodation on immigration and the speed of it between the people who want more and less. Second thing, and, and that that be an open conversation and yeah. nobody be stigmatized yeah. as a racist for wanting less. So that's kind of number one. But number two also is the way the nation has talked about should not just be about change and diversity, which is, I think, where we are now. Um, but I think you should have, the, you know, you can talk about multicultural London to a, a group of, you know, uh, liberals in, in, in London, but you can also talk about um, the green and pleasant land. You should, the politicians should also be referencing these more timeless 
uh, myths and symbols that are meaningful to that conservative part of the population. John Major, when he talked about cricket grounds, right, and he, yes. got, he got attacked, and he shouldn't so have he been... Was mocked, wasn't he? Yeah, that shouldn't, because that, that is definitely part... We know in the BBC Englishness survey that landscape and history are, are, are very important, particularly to white British people, um, more so than... But ethnic minorities, they're important somewhat, but particularly for white British people and particularly for... Uh, conservatives, and, and that's fine. So there, what I'm arguing is that politicians should be uh, sort of name-checking a number of these different narratives and not trying to say there's only one way to be British, and that's sort of British values plus diversity and change. So we want to actually allow that more conservative side that's attached to things like ancestry and history and landscape, that politicians should be recognizing that identity as well. Mm -hmm. So if they're recognizing both, then each side can read into the, you know, the nation can be what they want it to be. And I, so I think that more tolerant approach would be superior to what I think is, is a sort of intolerance, particularly in, influenced by progressivism that says, no, you must only see the nation as changing and multicultural. Yeah. Uh, and my view is that's, that's one view. And it's fine to have that view. Those people shouldn't be stigmatized, but don't try and force that on everybody. A revolutionary thought at the moment, <laughs> uh, I would say. Uh, Eric, thank you very, very much. It's an thank extremely you. important book. Thank you for coming on and discussing it. Um, look forward to seeing you next time on So What You're Saying Is. Please do remember to subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And I uh, hope to see you next time. Thank you very much.